marriage has fallen on hard times in the West. I think it was 2008 when it was first announced that for the first time in human history, the population of unmarried adults outnumbers the population of married adults. What once was an abnormality, divorce, has now become normal. And indeed, it has come to the point where you could even say it's expected. The impermanence of marriage is so accepted that it's commonplace now for people to enter into prenuptial agreements what were once only for people on the fringe. We hedge our bets and protect ourselves from the get-go because marriage has fallen on hard times. Millions of women and men in our modern culture have sworn it off. Millions of women are told marriage is a patriarchal relic of the past that keeps women suppressed. Millions of men are told it's not worth the headache. The laws are written against you, and you're just setting yourself up for failure. And in light of the post-60s, why buy the cow when you get the milk for free? Millions of men are saying this. Marriage has fallen on hard times. This past week, Vice President Mike Pence caused an inadvertent fi- inadvertently caused a firestorm when his wife was interviewed and it came out that he has a policy, the Billy Graham policy, that he won't eat dinner alone with a woman and he won't attend an event with alcohol unless his wife is with him. And that caused a firestorm in the media, a, a veritable outcry of this misogynistic man who's keeping women from access to the highest levels of society and all this. He was even scorned and ridiculed on Christian blogs. Marriage has indeed fallen on hard times. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. For Christians, marriage is important. And Christians value marriage. Period. Christians value marriage. And Christians understand that what Mike Pence is doing is not setting some rule for you to follow. It's his personal practice based upon an awareness of the sinfulness and deceptiveness of the human heart. He understands that there's no such thing as a person who's impervious to temptation. And because he values his marriage, he seeks to protect it. So, If there's one thing you hear from me today, one thing, it's that marriage, your marriage, children to your future marriage, it is important. God himself is involved and invested in your marriage 
So fight for it. Protect it. Protect it while you're in it. And even now, youngsters, protect your marriage preemptively by what you allow into your mind to form the expectations of normal behavior and right expectation. This passage is one of those passages that in former decades it probably would have been pretty easy to preach in a Christian culture. But now, I have to have another job lined up just to come up here and give this message. No, not really. (laughs) This passage speaks about divorce. It seeks to address the issue of attempting to separate what God has put together. Now, this passage is one of the more scandalous ones because, let's face it, Jesus does not give an exception clause in this passage. He doesn't. And understand this. There are exceptions. There are exceptions. But what Jesus is doing here is he's following the old legal maxim, hard cases make bad law. You ever heard that old maxim? What it means is, when you're stating a general rule, a general principle, what you address are the main, ordinary, normal situations. And then you have some extraordinary circumstances on the periphery that require special circumstances. But in the main, here's the rule that applies to everybody. It's kind of like in the military. In the army, there's about 500,000 soldiers on active duty. Of those 500,000, approximately 1,200 are chaplains. Chaplains are unique. We're non-combatants. We don't carry weapons for defense or defense of anyone else. So what they do is all the regulations are written for the remaining 498,000 people. And so there's just little asterisk footnotes in the back of a few where it points out that we are an exception to everything else. When the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce, understand they are not talking about in cases of adultery. The law prescribed a penalty for adultery. Do you know what it was? Stoning. And they were more than happy to do that. In John 8, you see them prepared to carry it out. No, in their day, What they were talking about was, I'm sick of my wife. I found a better model, which, yes, according to a Mishnah, was one of the reasons you could divorce your wife. They found a better model. She didn't obey me fast enough. I don't like her cooking. This was the mainstream. The Pharisees were committed as a group to the school of Hillel, which authorized divorce across the board. So this passage, while it does not have the exception clauses, understand that it's addressing the main. Now when we talk about marriage, we very quickly want to gravitate towards those exceptional. But what about this? What about that? I've counseled a lot of married couples in the military, many of whom are not believers, And my own counseling experience bears the statistical reality. Most divorces are not the result of adultery and abuse and desertion. 
most cases of divorce are because I'm sick and tired of putting up with their nonsense. I can't take them one more day. I'm wasting my life. I made a wrong decision. I just don't love him anymore. He's not meeting my needs. This is the norm, the mainstream, and it is what is in view here with this passage, okay? So, hard cases make bad law. Easy cases make good law. So, what we have here are two things. One, why why we even have divorce? What's so wrong with it? And what's so right about marriage that you should defend it and fight for it? What's going on? Well, they're trying to get Jesus. So in chapter 10, verse 1, it shows that Jesus is on a mission. He is on a mission to the cross. He's one of the most mission-focused people you will ever encounter. And he's on his way to die. He's got the cross in his sights. And so as he's making his way north to south from the top of the Sea of Galilee in the north and the top uttermost regions of the province of Galilee, he's making his way down and he's entered the region or the province of Judea. And it says he enters Judea and he crosses the Jordan. So scholars have identified he was on the main highway, the common road that people took when they would go from north to south. And here's the key part. He crosses the Jordan. This means that geographically, he's in the region controlled by Herod. Herod, the same guy who had just cut off John the Baptist's head. Herod, the guy who had imprisoned him and had gotten his wife so furious that she wanted his blood more than anything for, remember why? Yep. John had spoken out against the fact that Herod had married his brother's ex-wife. In fact, we get the impression that Herodias had left his brother to marry Herod himself. And John had spoken out about that and got in trouble, got arrested and ultimately executed. So the Pharisees are thinking, hey, here we are in Herod's territory. Oh, Jesus! What do you think of divorce? Can you imagine what they're hoping that will happen? And they're there to test him. So like any good professor, they have their follow-up questions ready. This is not a sincere question. They're not, oh my goodness, what, Jesus is divorce? I mean, we're, we're having this, we don't know, is, is, is divorce okay? No, they know it's okay. They, or they think it's okay anyway. Their minds are settled. They're trying to get him. And so Jesus puts it back on them. What does Moses command you? Well, Moses permits us to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Do you like that casting her out image? Just get out of here. The irony is that they are busy looking like any natural person for the out They want to know, 
under what circumstances can I ditch my wife? And so they focused on Deuteronomy 24.1. Deuteronomy 24.1 is the basis for Hebraic divorce law. But if you look back at Deuteronomy 24, it isn't the commandment. If you look back at Deuteronomy 24, what Moses is saying in context is, if a man divorces his wife, and if he sends, gives her this certificate and sends her on her way, and if she marries another and he dies or whatever, he can't marry the first wife. It's an admonition. Once you've sent her away, pal, you can't have her back. So think twice. The hard human heart, the heart that resists God and resists his purpose, didn't care about that bigger context. They just focused in and they zoomed in on that little passage. If he sends her away with her specific, woohoo! If they had engaged in a good hermeneutic, they would have learned that the Old Testament speaks against this kind of thing. Indeed, Malachi chapter 2, God hates divorce. And he views a man who, who does unjust proceedings against his wife as a man who, who, who clothes himself in violence. God loves marriage. And he hates divorce. But they didn't care. Like so many of us, they never lifted their eyes above the nominal the realm of what we see going on around us. What we see going on around us is a person who grates on our nerves day in and day out. A person who fights with us and bickers at us. A person we put our lives on hold for. A person who disappoints us. A person who takes our hard work and our affection for granted. That's what we see. And we get tired of it. And so the natural man wants to know, under what circumstances can I get out of this? And Jesus, he says, your hard-heartedness is why we even have this in here. What does that even mean? Because of your hard-heartedness, Moses authorized divorce. This is an example of the civil use of the law. We are sinners in relationship with other sinners. And in a broken, sinful world where people will act sinfully, quite frankly, sometimes the best thing you can do is to mitigate against further collateral damage caused by sin. This divorce law with the requirement for a written certificate of divorce, was there for the protection of the woman, and it was to cause the man to slow down and think, wait, this is like a, a big deal. You can't be like in Islam. I read this article from January. Uh, it was actually a letter from a Muslim in India to, to this imam. He got angry, and in a fit of anger, this Muslim guy, he, he, yelled, he yelled the Islamic, the Arabic word for divorce three times, which according to Islamic law affects a divorce. And so he's like, I didn't mean it. I was angry. I didn't mean it, but I said it. My wife and I, we've made up. But I know in, in the Quran it says this. Uh, and the imam's response was, you said it. Y'all need to go get remarried. 
And God's law was intended to slow the process down. Sometimes in in the heat of a moment, we're so fired up, we say and do things we regret. And so the requirement here was meant to slow it down, turn down the burners, cool things down, so you don't make a hasty decision. But it was to protect the woman. If you read the Old Testament, these guys were violent, vile people many times. Imagine what would happen to a woman if she's subject to a man who's a, who, who just hates her. If he can't get rid of her, what's he going to do to her? See what I mean? God didn't want divorce. He doesn't want divorce. His word says he hates it. But in a sinful, fallen world where there's collateral damage, we have to mitigate against the effects as best we can. And that's what Moses does. It was a concession to a fallen, hardened people who stubbornly, persistently refused to follow the purposes of God for their marriage. Divorce always, always testifies to the hardness of heart. There is no such thing as a sinless divorce. Either someone sins to breach the covenant or both people sin to breach. Someone has sinned. There is no such thing as a good divorce. Do not confuse God conceding begrudgingly with God blessing. When a divorce happens, sometimes it's necessary, but never is it required. Did you know that? Did you know there is no circumstance in the Bible where you are required to divorce? God's desire is always for repentance and reconciliation. But sometimes in a fallen world, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. But there's never a good divorce. Marriage is precious. So why? What is so precious about it? Well, for that, Jesus takes them back to creation. You guys are so worried about case law and, and, and God's accommodation for sinful people that you're focusing on the trees and you're missing the forest, which is from the beginning you were designed for togetherness. You were created male and female. Now I could go into how this Jesus affirms here that marriage is between a man and a woman, but simple biology testifies to the fact that we were created for the other. God made it. He set it up. And then he goes to, Deut- to Genesis 2.27 where God brings about the first marriage. God is the one who plays matchmaker. God is the one who brings, ab- apart, or brings about the union. And they become one flesh. This raises things to a whole new level when Jesus affirms, therefore, they are no longer two, but one. This takes it to the level of ontology. Do you know what ontology is? It's what being is. In our culture, with all of its profound wisdom, and I say that that was sarcastic, 
you know, they, there's lots of books about relationship advice. I have a hard time accepting the advice of a culture that celebrates abnormality and uh, can't figure out right if it hit him in the face. Okay, this is not going to... This is supposed to be super glued together. <laughs> All right? <laughs> I can smell it. Whew. Okay. If you take these two sticks and super glue them properly together, you have one stick. Separate them. I mean, they're super glued together. <laughs> I can break it in half and produce two sticks, but these two things that I will produce by ripping them in half are no longer the same things that they, that they were to get before. It's one being now. And in our culture, oh man, we, we talk all about maintaining your own personhood and your own identity and beware of codependency. They invent all these psychological terms to describe what is properly understood as just pro biblical togetherness. You are one with your spouse. One. And you know what? This has implications. It means that God is an active participant in your marriage. He did not just create marriage. He played matchmaker to put you together. So you may be tempted at times to think, I married the wrong person. No, you didn't. If you think you married the wrong person, no, look at your marriage certificate. You married the person on there. Okay? You married precisely who God wanted you to marry. I don't, I, I just don't love, I, I got I to divorce them. I, I, I just don't love them anymore. You hear that sounds so sincere. I just got to be faithful to my heart. Stop following your heart. Love the person you're with. Did you know that people's emotions wax and wane? Yeah. Your affection for your kids waxes and wanes. There are days when you really don't like your kids, right? There are days when they're the best thing ever. There are days when I wake up and I'm like, oh man, another day of looking at her. And there are days when it's just, I can't get enough of her. I like to say that Kay and my marriage is going to end with one or both of us dead. <laughs> that's a play on words, get it? To death to us part, one or both of us did anyway. <laughs> God didn't just set you up. He affected the union. In fact, he's the bonding agent. If this this is this illustrate this this out, this didn't work right. But people think our love will keep us together. It's God who keeps you together. He's the bonding agent. Malachi 2.15 says as much. Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? God himself, the third person of the Trinity, is involved in your union. It is important. So God is present. He, he set you up with your spouse. He's the one bonding you together into one 
person. Ben, then why is marriage so hard? It's because we are so hard. We like to think that, that uh, you know, that, that, in, that in, the, in the art studio that is God's sanctification department, that we are this beautiful potter's clay that God can mold and form so easily. And we, just, and we just cooperate with every little movement of God's hand. We are more like Mount Rushmore. And to make something beautiful out of it, you got to blast and drill. Who here has been to Mount Rushmore? If you haven't, go. It's awesome. But just to get to where they could start chiseling on the surface of that mountain, they had to blast 450,000 tons of rock. How much is that, Ben? That's the equivalent of 4.5 Nimitz-class aircraft carriers fully loaded with, with munitions, people, and aircraft. That's heavy. And that's what we are like. We are stubborn and hard. And God blasts us and drills at us. But over the course of time, you start seeing those beautiful faces. And before long, you see fully defined features. He is making a masterpiece And your marriage is instrumental. Your marriage is not, hear me, your marriage is not the obstacle to the life God wants for you. Your marriage is exactly the instrument God is using to bring about the life God wants for you. Don't give up on your marriage. God doesn't give up on your marriage. Let marriage be held in honor by all. God put you together. He's working in your marriage. Don't give up. Keep going. Be faithful. Because marriage itself is a picture of God's faithfulness to us. In fact, we're told in Ephesians 5 that Marriage provides the perfect illustration to describe and depict God's relationship with his people. Think of all the times your husband or your wife has driven you batty, where where you have thought, I can't take one more day of this. They've disappointed you, they've disrespected you, they've screamed at you, they've done whatever. That's God holding a mirror up to your face. That's exactly what we do to him. We kick and we bite and we yell and we scratch. And God relentlessly, faithfully brings us along. Now what about those who have been divorced? He says, if you're divorced and you marry another, you've committed adultery. Oh, what does that mean? Well, I want you to know there's only one unforgivable sin and divorce isn't it. Adultery isn't it. There's grace. 
there's grace. There's grace. But what we have to do, like the Syrophoenician woman back a few chapters before when Jesus calls her a dog, we have to accept God's verdict. The path of discipleship is hard, remember. It involves taking up our cross and dying. It involves us saying, yes, Lord, I accept your verdict, but there's grace sufficient even for me. Don't sit there and try to justify yourself to an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God. Humbly say, God, I erred, and I can't undo it. Please give me newness of life. Forgive me. Make my sins white as snow. And he's faithful. And he will indeed restore your heart, your faith, and your standing. What if out if I've remarried? Is this an adulterous relationship? God is in that union. You don't need to divorce your new wife. That would be adding sin to sin. God is the God who forgives iniquity and who takes dirty things and washes them off and makes them clean things. Now to you kids or to you who are adults and you're hard and, and you have been the unwilling participant in a divorce and you live with the consequences of other people's decisions, I am so sorry. It was not meant to be that way. Don't let your heart be hardened. Don't grow cynical and jaded. Your parents, your parents are not meant to be your all. All the affection and longing and normalcy that you crave, seek it in the one who created you who carries you from the moment you were conceived in your mother's womb until you take your final breath. He carries you. Seek your acceptance and your normalcy from Him. And keep your heart soft. Beloved, marriage is important. God is active in your marriage. He's involved and invested. Fight for it. Protect it. Celebrate it. Let's pray.